I think for anybody that wants success immediately in their 20s or even in their 30s, ask yourself, what do you want this for? Do you want this so that you feel better about who you are? Do you want it for financial reward? Or do you want it because you want to build a long practice that allows you to grow into greatness? If you are seeking outside validation, it's not going to work and it's not going to last because anything that you are told or given or rewarded by, you will metabolize. The Giant Thinker. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. G'day Giants, it's Ram Castillo here. Welcome to episode number 39. As the first episode of 2017, it's only fitting that I wish you all a very happy new year and that we kick off the show with a jaw-dropping guest. She is an icon and a pioneer in the design, education, and podcasting world, named one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA. Our guest is also an author of six books, a brand strategist, formerly the president of the design division at Sterling Brands for 20 years and host of the podcast Design Matters, the first and longest running podcast about design. She has interviewed nearly 300 design luminaries and cultural commentators. And when you thought it couldn't get any more juicy, she is also the chair and co-founder of the master's program in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Speaking of, this was recorded face-to-face in NYC in November last year, and I'm excited to finally let this one out of the bag. Some of the topics we spoke about include how to deal with challenges and heartbreak on our career path, advice to designers who are struggling to decide which discipline to focus on, the difference between a good designer and a great one, practical tips for those wanting to start a podcast, and plenty more. Now, before we dive in, I want to introduce to you an affordable, easy-to-use marketing software that's especially beneficial for small businesses. Many listeners have asked me the question, which email service do I recommend to collect emails and broadcast weekly? Well, it's not MailChimp, it's not Aweber, it's not ConvertKit, and it's not Infusionsoft. It's actually MailerLite. When I said affordable, MailerLite offer a free plan for up to 1,000 subscribers with no expiry date. You can use all the features, including drag and drop, autoresponders, landing pages, tracking, and the mobile app. As a comparison, if you were to have, let's say, 5,000 subscribers sending unlimited emails, that would cost you $20 per month with MailerLite, while MailChimp will charge you $50 per month. That's more than double. Now, whether you're a freelancer or working full-time and have a side hustle, or whether you run a large company, MailerLite can accommodate for you as they've done with their existing 200,000 plus customers in over 72 countries, including BMW, GoPro, FWA, Typeform, and IKEA. Head to MailerLite.com to set up your free account. 
That's mailer, L-I-T-E dot com. Alrighty, let's do it. I present to you the deeply thoughtful, wise and compassionate Debbie Millman. Debbie Millman, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. I am so excited to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Ram. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, I'm actually here in uh, SVA, uh, in uh, the School of Visual Arts in NYC. And uh, we are in Debbie's beautiful studio, Soundproof, <laughs> where the uh, the wonderful Design Matters uh, show is, is uh, hosted at. And uh, I'm looking outside the view that I have is of many chairs and seats. So you actually have people coming in and sitting in on these podcasts. Well, my students, my graduate students uh, in my program in branding, the master's program in branding here at SVA, part of what they are able to do as students is to sit in and listen to the podcast live as they're happening. And then my guests come out of the studio afterward and spend time with the students and the students get to ask questions. And so uh, it's a wonderful opportunity for them to get to know the guests that I have more intimately. Yeah, for sure. And and what an environment that, that creates as well. Uh, so I'm actually uh, halfway through my tour right now, and um, Debbie and I actually met uh, and caught up in Las Vegas last October. At the AIGA conference. Yes. And my, that was also my first time uh, at the conference. And so many times I was just pinching myself, you know, meeting you, um, catching up with Michael Beirut, David Carson, and Steve Frickhome, all these greats. Uh, and, and so I highly recommend the uh, the conference and, and going to those events. So first off, Debbie, I have an icebreaker question for you. Uh, not that there's much ice to, to be broken here, but uh, what is your all-time favorite podcast? Podcast that I listen to yes. or podcast that I have made? Podcast that you listen to yourself. Oh, that's a really hard question. I know. This, <laughs> I was like, what's a question not many people would ask? Wow. But, but, you know, you, you, of course, many people know you as having uh, the first ever design podcast uh, in the world and longest running. So yes. I'd love to know what, what's the one that you Well, my love. latest favorite is a podcast that Steve Watson has created for his really cool business, which is called Stack Magazines. I actually just interviewed him for Design Matters. And he has a subscription service that provides independent magazines to people all over the world. So he is a distributor, essentially, and a curator at the same time. Um, And he sends out a subscription service of independent magazines to people so that they can broaden their horizons, learn about new magazines. It is definitely proof positive that print is not dead, mm. uh, just in many ways better than ever before. Um, and so that's my latest favorite. But I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and love a lot of podcasts. I, I can imagine. Um, <laughs> that's unreal. I will certainly check that out, as, as I'm sure the listeners will too. Now, where would you say your expertise lies? Mm. You're asking me really hard questions, Ram. Gonna, Where does my expertise I'm lie? I'm going to make this count, this, this interview. Well, that would presume <laughs> my belief that I have specific expertise. Um, where does my expertise lie? I guess as a teacher. 
Mm. That is that is the thing that I I think I do best. And as evidenced by my students' success out there in the marketplace, I have evidence. Mm. So it's not just sure. a it's not just an opinion about my expertise. It's tangible proof that I have been able to provide a good educational foundation to a number of people that are, I believe, making a difference. Mm. So I guess as an educator. Fantastic. And, and it is certainly not an easy question to answer. No. Um, as I said, it presumes having a belief in one's key areas of expertise. Totally. <laughs> I don't know that I necessarily do, but I'd like to think that I have some expertise as an educator and can point to some real change makers out there that I would like to think I've influenced. Yeah. I'm glad you uh, contextualized that. Um, and, and I love the humility in your answer too. So um, the, the, the next question I have is, is around your childhood. How did you grow up? Because I couldn't really find much about, you know, your your upbringing, where, where uh, you spent most of your time as a, as a child. Uh, well, I'm a native New Yorker. I go. was born in Brooklyn. Nice. And then when I was about two, my parents uh, moved me and my little brother to Queens, Howard Beach, Queens. And we lived there until I was in the third grade. And then in the third grade... The family moved to Staten Island where my dad had bought a pharmacy. He's a, he was a pharmacist and he had, at that point, uh, bought his own store and lived there until my parents got divorced. Uh, that was, a, I think, the middle of fifth grade or thereabouts. And then right before I entered sixth grade, my mom moved my brother and I to Long Island and I lived on Long Island through till I graduated high school. And then I went to high school, I'm sorry, then I went to college at the State University of New York at Albany, which is about three hours north of New York City. And then graduated in May of 1983. Lived with my mother for about two weeks till I found a sublet in Manhattan. And I've lived in Manhattan now for 33 years. Wow. You are, <laughs> you are New York through and through. Um, a little side note here, I actually uh, asked Debbie over email what she recommends and she had a, a, already uh, a link ready to go. Uh, Debbie, uh, you've got a, a, an amazing list of recommendations. <laughs> well, because I'm a native New Yorker, a lot of people ask me what they should do when they're here. And so I decided to put a little sort of Easter egg on my website. And so if you go to my website, debbiemillman.com, in the lower right-hand corner, there's a little link that says NYC, and you can click into it. And in that, you will find all of my favorite places. Now, there's a bunch that have since closed since I started that list. Armin Vitt of Brand New and Under Consideration is the designer of my website. And he is about to visit for a week and will be arriving tomorrow. And so I said, well, let's carve out some time to do the redesign of my website because I also have to update my NYC links because of course, some of them yeah. have closed. But it is still a 
pretty comprehensive list oh my of my gosh. favorite restaurants, museums, places in New York, just interesting things to see and do. And that will that will remain, but will be updated and added to. Giants, I'm telling you now, it is to just skip Lonely Planet, TripAdvisor, just go to Debbie's NYC <laughs> list. Um, it is now going to be my life's mission to uh, go through that list bit by bit. I'll do it quick before I update it because <laughs> right. then it'll probably be impossible. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. So Debbie, you've achieved so much in your life to date. Okay. Uh, needless to say, um, you have achieved, uh, so many things in, in a, in a myriad, a hybrid of, of different, uh, areas. I'd love to revisit some of the struggles and challenges much earlier when you first started your career path. Sure. Um, you know, let's look at the, the, the area of after high school and around college and after college, because- sure. Honestly, I, I have so many emerging designers who email me and direct message me, pouring out their heart, saying um, that it's actually bloody hard. It's really hard, but anything worthwhile takes a long time, and yeah. it just is hard. But the one thing that I can say about things being hard is that pretty much everything is hard. Working at McDonald's is hard. Working at Starbucks is hard. If everything is hard, why not strive for the thing you love? Because while it'll be hard to make a difference and achieve to the level that you hope and dream of, if you know that everything is hard, why not choose the thing that is going to give you the greatest amount of joy in that effort? It reminds me of uh, the commencement speech that Jim Carrey delivered. I highly recommend Everyone watches that on YouTube. Um, and he said something about um, you can fail at the thing that you dislike. So you might as well do the thing that you love. Right, right. People often tell me that they want to do something that is more secure or that is safer. But there really is no such thing because the chances of success or failure are very much the same because you are the same person and you bring that level of intensity to whatever it is you do. You don't become a different person if you are pursuing something that's safer. You're still the same you and you bring to it the same intensity and the same effort. It might as well be the thing you love more than anything because chances are you will be that much more passionate in your pursuit of it mm. and therefore have a greater chance of success if you are that much more involved in the outcome being something that you deeply, deeply want. What's a story you can share around that time earlier on when? you didn't know what, what to do next, or you felt that it was a defining moment or, or something that you'd come out the other side and went, okay, there's, there's hope. Well, that story is a 20 year story. Mm. I did not achieve what I would consider to be meaningful success until I was in my forties. I had some financial success, but it wasn't soul-fulfilling, heart-enriching success, which is something I think everybody is striving for, or anybody that wants a remarkable life is striving for. Mm. And I 
had a very, very difficult childhood, um, was treated really poorly a lot of the time, and came out of high school with very little direction. My sole criteria for picking the school that I went to, which turned out to be a great school, but at the time my criteria was my best friend Tammy went there and it was a state school that was more affordable. I only had the option of going to a state school. There was no option for me to do anything but go to a state school because that was all that was... Public, uh, non-private. A a state school Mm. that was, yeah, public. Um, It was affordable Mm. or more affordable. I still came out of school with student debt Um, and quite by chance was able to discover that this the school had a fantastic student newspaper. And so it was through my work on the student newspaper that I did in my senior year of college that began to open doors to what became my future endeavors. Um, I thought I might want to be a journalist, discovered when I was working on the student newspaper that I had as much, if not more, passion and interest for the design of the paper because all of the editors and writers of the paper were expected to put the paper together. And so I got my first experience doing layout and paste up because that's all it was done with at that point. That was how you created newspapers with your sort of basic drafting skills. Um, This was in the early 80s. So while we did work on CompuGraphic uh, machines and some computers, um, it was all put together by hand. And then when I graduated, um, my only skill set was really having these drafting skills. And so I thought I would get a job working on a newspaper or a magazine and, and pursued that with very little success. (laughs) Um, I had a dream of working at Vanity Fair uh, at Condé Nast and actually got an interview at Condé Nast. I submitted my portfolio and got a call back, but met with the director of human resources at Condé Nast. And for anybody that's ever seen The Devil Wears Prada, I interviewed with the devil. (laughs) Not with with Anna Wintour, for sure. She was not at Condé Nast at that point, or it certainly wasn't at American Vogue. Um, But somebody that could have worked for her. Um, She was terrifying and gorgeous. And I was this chubby girl from Long Island and had a terrible sort of faux brown leather portfolio with the flappy, slappy, plastic sleeve pages. Um, She asked me what I wanted to do um, in design and didn't know there was different disciplines like promotional design and editorial design and so on and so forth and looked at her with all of my eagerness and lack of sophistication and said, I'd do anything. And that wasn't quite the answer she was looking for. And I didn't get the job. Um, I ended up doing basic layout and paste up at a rock and roll magazine that friends of mine had started, friends that I had met at SUNY Albany and was working, I think, for $20,000 a year. Um, Barely had enough money to pay my rent. I had to decide every month if I was going to pay my rent, my student loan, or buy food. Mm. (laughs) And I was living in a fourth floor tenement walk-up on 16th Street that uh, I had to walk through my roommate's bedroom to get to mine. My roommates were a married couple, and so that was sometimes uncomfortable for all. (laughs) 
And, um, but I was living in Manhattan and that was the dream. That was what I wanted. And I struggled all, I would say that my twenties and into my early thirties were, um, years of, of epic experiments in rejection and failure. And I've always had a tremendous amount of resilience and a tremendous amount of persistence and didn't want to give up on trying to do something, but I didn't know how to make anything happen. You know, I didn't have any big time connections. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any style. I had a lot of dreams, a lot of hopes, a bit of gumption. I think I was a bit plucky (laughs) and just kept um, trying and experimenting and finally, finally, finally got a job in my early 30s that I was good at. Everything else up until that point, I wasn't particularly good at. And I found again, quite by accident, that I was good at branding, sort of intrinsically good at branding, probably because I had spent so much time in my father's pharmacy when I was growing up and understood the sort of consumer product engagement and really understood human motivation and why people wanted things or needed things, probably because of my own interest in that. And then also watching people purchase things for decades. And so I joined Sterling Brands in 1995 and worked there for 22 years. We sold the company in 2008, which was a wonderful opportunity for me to Uh, work with one of the world's largest holding companies, Omnicom, and had an extraordinary run as we um, grew and developed. And I had opportunities to work with many of our sister companies, Wolf Olin, Siegel & Gale, uh, Integer, BBDO. It was just an amazing, amazing time for me to really see the world of advertising, promotion, trend forecasting. And in 2007, the year before we sold the business, I had an opportunity. uh, Steve Heller invited me to found with him, to co-found the first ever master's in branding program at the School of Visual Arts. And so I did that with Steve and have been running the program. I did it simultaneously while I was working at Sterling for eight years. <laughs> so I had a day job at Sterling and a night job at SVA because the program is an evening program. It's catered to working professionals. And then just recently left Sterling after 22 years, 22 wonderful years. And I'm now concentrating on writing, designing, illustrating, curating, teaching, podcasting, making art. <laughs> Saving the world. And yeah, trying to save the world <laughs> one one poster at a time. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, where do I begin from that answer? Um, thank you, firstly. That was beautiful. And uh, I, I truly appreciate the depths with which you uh, took us through that narrative. Um, I think that the world needs to hear it and they need more Debbie Millman. Um, oh dear (laughs) watch out (laughs) Uh, uh, well I say that because what you just shared was the magic pill that everyone is um, whether they are conscious about it or subconsciously um, admitting it um, we we are to an extent uh, in 
this world of wanting instant gratification or at oh, least Oh yeah. I I, I say it all the time. That. I say we live in we're living in a in a 140 character culture. Mm. You know, we want everything as fast as possible. And real meaning and real effort comes from a dogged persistence of what it is you hope and dream for mm. or dream of. And I don't believe that it's possible for most people to achieve greatness quickly or early. Mm. I think the longer it takes, the longer it lasts. And you don't want to peak too early. What, why? I mean, I think for anybody that wants success immediately in their 20s or even in their 30s, ask yourself, what do you want this for? Mm. Do you want this so that you feel better about who you are? Do you want it for financial reward? Or do you want it because you want to build a long practice that allows you to grow into greatness? If you are seeking outside validation, it's not going to work and it's not going to last because anything that you are told or given or rewarded by, you will metabolize. We metabolize everything very quickly. And so if we're told that we've succeeded at this specific thing, because we're humans and we adapt and we metabolize, we're going to just want the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. And then you're just on this hedonistic treadmill of success and it can be impossible to live a life of meaning while chasing this elusive other. And so ask yourself, if you're looking to make a difference, that difference will take a long time to build. Yeah, there are people like Mark Zuckerberg and Jessica Hish and Jessica Walsh that have been enormously successful early on. But that is far and few between. Most people takes a long time to make it. It takes a long time to really evolve into having thoughts that are sophisticated enough to be worthy of sharing. Um, and people should be patient with that because I do believe, I truly with all my heart believe, the longer it takes, the longer it will last and the more you'll be prepared for the success when it comes. Completely agree. Completely agree. Um, Here's a question for you, um, and I'm curious to know how you answer this. It's a, it's a two-part question uh, along these lines that, with what you've just said, but uh, what do you stand for, and how are you measuring its progress? Ram, I don't know what I stand for. I know what I believe in, mm. and I believe in being a, a society of, of equals making meaning. Mm. I don't know that I stand for anything because I don't ascribe to standing for anything. I believe in things. Yeah. I believe in a lot of things. I'm, I'm extremely optimistic about humanity's future while being um, slightly pessimistic about the times. 
but I do believe in the power of humanity. And I do fundamentally believe that we are extraordinary, magical creatures that have so much to offer. And I believe that anyone can and should be able to change the world. Mm. Well said. Swinging the needle just a tad, uh, what advice would you give to emerging designers who are struggling to define their design offering? You know, many who I know enjoy all types of disciplines from print to product to digital interaction, UX design. Any advice for them to better navigate their way or do they become a jack of all trades, do you think? Or do they go all in on one thing? I don't believe in choosing. Mm. I Part of the reason that interview back at Condé Nast when I was first starting out was so bad was because I really did answer honestly. I would do anything. She wanted me to pick one thing, and mm. I couldn't pick one thing. Not only did I not know that there were things to pick from, but I've never, ever just wanted to do one thing. And my whole life has been about doing a lot of different things at the same time. I think this is so good that you've said that. And because this question is coming from the enormous amount of emerging designers who are studying or just about to graduate who ask me this during Q&A and the fact that you've shared that same Well, I mean, I think if you want to do one thing, then do one thing. But if you don't want to do one thing and you want to do a lot of different things, then do what's in your heart. Everything that I do in my life blurs together. I don't see it as work. I see it all as a bit of a labor of love. So my teaching informs my podcasting and my podcasting informs my teaching and my teaching informs my art and my art informs my writing and my writing informs my podcast. So it all blurs together into this big sort of messy thing called life. If any of those things were to disappear, I would be heartbroken. But I'm also in my 50s, so I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of those things. If you want to be good at something, you have to dedicate a certain amount of time to it. So the more you do, the longer it's going to take to get great at it if you are lucky enough to get great at all. So know that if you're going to segment your time into doing a lot of different things, it might take you a bit longer to achieve a certain level of quality or greatness doing those things. Mm. If you do one thing and you do it consistently, you'll probably get better at it than somebody that's doing several things at once. But the person that's doing several things at once will eventually catch up and might have the ability to cross-pollinate in ways that somebody only doing one thing might not be able to do. And I'm really into what Maria Popova would call combinatorial creativity. Everything informs everything. That's a super powerful insight. What advice uh, would you give to those that, well, if, you, if we look at an important skill that you learned when, when you were an emerging designer, uh, what's one skill that you wish all emerging designers would inherit? The ability to be honest about what they do and don't want to do. So often when I'm talking to young designers or students, they'll say, oh, I really want to do that self-generated project, but I'm just too busy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Busy is a decision. 
and I say this all the time, that will likely be if I have one on my tombstone. Busy is a decision. (laughs) Busy was a decision. (laughs) We decide the things we want to do. We do the things that are priorities. And if you want to do a self-generated project so that you can make work that you're really proud of with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and you say that you're too busy to do it, it's because you don't really want to do it because it's not a priority, because you'd rather watch Game of Thrones, because you'd rather sleep more, whatever it is. So be honest about your motivations. If you want to do something, you will do it. If you don't want to do something, you will find lots of excuses and reasons why you can't do it. And people use busy as a badge. I'm too busy. No, it's an excuse, not a badge. If you want to do it, do it. Yeah, I I'm I'm uh, chuckling here because I uh, I often reflect on the thought that I think most people do know what they want. It's just that they uh, may realize the amount of work involved, and it becomes uncomfortable, terrifying, the unknown, yeah, of course, uh, risky, and that's the thing. Yeah, that, if you want to yeah. do it, you have to do it. There are no excuses. Mm. The only excuses are the things that you tell yourself that prevent you from doing it. Love that. Now, when it comes to design education, uh, what do you feel is missing in design education today? I was never educated as a designer. I work at the greatest design school in the world, in my opinion. I don't know that anything is missing. (laughs) I can't say that anything was missing when I was growing up because I didn't have any design education. I took one design class in college, one, and I didn't even know what it was. Mm. We were making restaurant logos (laughs) and doing color studies. Um, I think that design education at SVA is kick ass. We graduate some of the greatest students I've ever had the privilege to teach. People like Joe Hollier, who just designed the light phone, Deborah Adler, who designed Target's RX packaging, uh, Santiago Carasquilla. I mean, these young people, Joey Cafone, they're, they're amazing. They're doing some extraordinary work. Mm. So I... I'm not the person to talk to um, if it comes to what else do we need in design education. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting observation I've been having where uh, more and more I'm hearing uh, companies, call it design firms, agencies, studios, what have you, uh, frustrated by... By what? By uh, having applicants... Uh, a bombardment of graduates from various design schools, colleges and whatnot, um, not producing their perceived notion of job-ready graduates. Mm. And then there are education institutions, and and mind you, this is is not um, all by any means, but some, uh, where I'm hearing this repetition of conversation and dialogue of design institutions, uh, education institutions, then saying, well, you're not helping us out that much. 
um, you know, if you you guys are the professionals, then uh, you know, help us out. Um, and and so there's there's almost that bridge that is 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 getting uh, quite wide now. Well, I mean, I, I I can I actually I can imagine that it would be really hard to hire entry level designers that are unaware that the job that they have gotten is expecting and requiring them to provide a benefit. Mm -hmm. So for anybody that is looking for a job, if you can't articulate what your benefit is to that company, this company is giving you money (laughs) to do what it is you do. What are you providing them? And I teach a class, an, an undergraduate class, which is separate from my my graduate program, and I've been doing that for 12 years now. And it's called Differentiate or Die, How to Get a Job When You Graduate. Because of this very reason that most young people don't realize that when they graduate, they have to be able to differentiate who they are, what they stand for, what they want in a way that allows the employer, potential employer, to understand what they personally can bring to any entry-level environment. And if somebody isn't capable of talking about what it is they could provide, what benefit they will bring as an entry-level employee, then they're likely not going to get the job. It's up to the applicant to differentiate who they are and to articulate what kind of difference they're going to make in the environment. If they are expecting a work-life balance, if they are expecting to do award-winning work on their first day, if they are expecting to be promoted in six months, they're probably deluding themselves. It doesn't mean that they are always. I'm sure there are people that get those opportunities. But most of the time, the entry-level applicant has to should be working harder than everybody else in the studio, first one in, last one to go, to be asking what they can be doing that they're not doing enough of, where can they be helpful, where can they add value, and to be able to provide a level of energy and passion and excitement and enthusiasm that no one else can bring because they have yet to be jaded. They have yet to be heartbroken. And this is an opportunity for them to bring that spirit into an organization unlike anybody else. So I'm going to riff off the great JFK line, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what entry level of any any discipline should be asking. Ask not what your company can do for you, ask what you can do for your company. Mm-hmm. And if you can answer those types of questions in any work environment, chances are you will make a difference wherever you are. Yeah. I love how you brought up... Um 
the ethics and uh, I, it reminds me of an article I wrote, one of, one of my first ever on Giant Thinkers uh, on the blog, and it was just titled, Your Attitude is More Valuable Than Skill. Oh, absolutely. When you're in an entry-level position, you are being hired for attitude, not skill. You are being hired for your personality and for your energy and for your ability to make things happen. Love it. One of your six books is titled How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. What a great title. What do you think is the difference between a good designer and a great one? And I say that because I guess we live in an era where, look, there's 99 designs, there's Fiverr, there's Upwork, previously known as Elance. Uh, there are so many people that can execute. Uh, and you know what? They're not that, they're not that bad from an execution side, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on what really makes us stand out. Ideas. Ideas. Yeah. Ideas. It's not about execution. Execution is important. You have to have flawless execution, but anybody. But that's almost the medium that now. We're, that's, that, those are table stakes. <laughs> yeah. Flawless execution is table stakes. And that is expected of anyone that says that they're a designer. Anyone that says they're, they're, they're a designer should be delivering flawless execution. If you are not delivering, delivering flawless execution, then you shouldn't be playing the game. Shouldn't be in the game at all. That is table stakes. That's what it takes to be a designer. To be a great designer, it is the way you combine ideas. It is the way, it is the intention. It is the deliberate differentiation. How do you create something in a new way that excites people and motivates people to see the world differently? Nailed it. And that, that's, that's greatness. But that's greatness in anything, not just greatness in design. The execution, the ability to execute, that's operational excellence. Mm. Every, everybody that is in a specific field should be able to provide operational excellence. What you do on top of that, those table stakes, is what makes a difference to how you're perceived, to the validity of the work, to the efficacy of the deliverable, to the greatness of the spirit. Totally on the same page. Thank you, Debbie, for that. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's some real talk right there. Now, this is a hard question. I've given you a few already. <laughs> I know you have. But um, of all the magnificent people you have interviewed, till this day, who left a profound impact on you and why? Chris Ware. Oh, yeah. You were, you were fast on that answer. Because I've heard it a lot. A lot of people ask me who's okay. your favorite. Good. And, it, you go. and it's sort of like Sophie's Choice. It's hard to pick. Yes. Um, actually, no. Now I have to say probably two. Um, Chris Ware and Alison Bechdel. Okay. Both of whom are uh, cartoonists. Wow. And they both, and maybe because they're, they're, they're more than cartoonists, they're visual novelists in a lot of ways, graphic novelists. Because of the e exceptional amount of research I do, I do a tremendous amount of research before I meet with and interview anyone. And... I lived in their visual worlds mm. for weeks before interviewing them, 
both. They both have numerous, numerous books that I had to read and become involved with because it's reading and watching and looking and living. Um, I was so immersed in their worldview that I think it just transformed me in a way that very few other interviews have have done. Um, Chris Ware in particular, um, his work is so deep and meaningful and is a real treatise on what it means to be human that I was, I was changed by, by, by both of those interviews in a, in a really big way. Well, I'm, I'm certainly going to check them out. We will uh, uh, be uh, intrigued until we do. I think uh, we're going to have to listen to those episodes. Yeah, I, I, I love both of those episodes. When it comes to how you balance your personal life, your passion projects, which are uh, very extensive, all while staying relevant in the design industry. This is a question I've gotten from a few from the listeners. How do you, how do you balance all that? Uh, is it literally just like not sleeping ever? Oh no, God, no. I'm a big sleeper. I'm a sleepaholic. I love sleeping. I love sleeping. My favorite place to be is in my bed. There you go. I love sleeping. Okay. So you get your sleep. I do. I do think that sleep has a lot to do with creative output because that's when your brain is regenerating. That's when your cells are regenerating. And so I think it's an important gestation period for creative people because you're germinating and all the unconscious stuff is happening in the brain. So I do spend a good amount of time sleeping. I try to sleep seven hours or eight hours every night and on the weekends even more. Mm. It's not unusual for me to do nine, maybe ten. So are you just very organized, <laughs> would you say? Um, or? I, well, I do think that a lot of what I do, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the work that I do informs other work that I do. Um, when I was working at Sterling, it was... I had a very segmented day. I had a day job and a night job. And so I did what I could during the day and I did what I do during the night. And then I'd have the weekends. And that's when I did a lot of my work for Design Matters. I just love what I do. So it doesn't feel like work. And I enjoy doing it so much that... You get lost in it. I do. I get lost in it. And it doesn't feel laborious. It feels... And, and also, Ram... I've wanted to do these things for so long that being able to do them now is such a gift. It's such a privilege that I just never want to stop doing it. Mm. You know, when you long to do something for a long time and then you get the opportunity to do it, you just don't ever want to stop. And so that's how I feel now. I just never want to stop doing these amazing things that it's taken me a lifetime to be able to do. So this question you might have gotten a few times, but I've, I've never asked it to any other guest. I've been waiting for the right one. Okay. <laughs> any practical tips for those wanting to start a podcast? Oh, okay. That's a good one. Very good one. Find something you're passionate about. Plan on dedicating a lot of time to it. Do it with your whole heart. Do it regularly. And treat your subject matter or your guests with utmost respect. Beautiful. Certainly something that uh, I'm learning along the way 
uh, with as well, a beautiful medium to communicate uh, passively. You can do multiple things by listening and learning at the same time. It's, it's great. Um, and you can pick and choose. Do you want to hear from and dive into these different worlds? And I think uh, podcasting, um, which has on the biggest scheme of media, um, is I think still has so much more um, room for people to share stories and whatnot. And uh, there are a lot of people who I'm meeting who are like, I want to start one and and they just, uh, they don't know where. And, and I'm always kind of just saying that, uh, you know, you're going to have to learn as you go, just like with anything. Oh else. yeah. Just, just I'm, I'm close to, if yeah. not at the 300 episodes mark at this point. And the first hundred are pretty awful. It took me a long time to even know what I wanted to do, let alone know what I was doing. Yeah. I mean, it was started quite by accident. I wasn't intending to do a podcast. I'm not even sure that the word podcast existed in 2004 when I was first asked to do a show like this. And so I've grown into being a podcaster. It was not something that I had ever anticipated doing. And now I love doing it. One other piece of practical advice that I'll give anybody that is interested in in doing a podcast with other people is to spend a lot of time listening. A lot of people don't really listen. They talk, they wait for somebody else to stop talking so that then they can start talking again. And so it's very important when you are interviewing or talking with other people to spend as much time paying attention to what people are actually saying before you come back into the conversation. I'm so glad you said that. It's, it's something that I'm learning too. Oh, I had to learn too. Yeah. Um, I, I'm also uh, just riffing off what you said, listening uh, for me, the, the learning I'm having right now. And, and uh, so I'm, this will be in the, the mid thirties to uh, just before the forties, this episode. And uh listening to myself back, I'm like cringing sometimes mm-hmm. to the first few episodes going, did you hear what your guest said? Uh, right. Why are you still referring to your notes, forcing the next question, which is irrelevant to the beautiful answer they've just provided? Have the conversation, have, make it allow for spontaneity and the rawness of it to, to uh, amplify. Um, so thank you for... Uh, for that thought too. Have you ever played pool? Pool, yeah. Pool. Yeah. So one of the I'm not great at it, but but one of <laughs> one of the strategies in pool is or billiards is not only to hit a ball into a hole. It's also important to try to leave the remaining balls that are on the table in strategic positions to be able to get the next ball in the hole and so on. That is a good podcast. You want to be able to get the ball in the hole, but you want to be able to leave enough balls on the table to get the next one in. And so that's why it's important to listen because that ball, the the question and the answer, the hole, leads you to all sorts of other interesting, should be able to lead you to other interesting questions that then lead to more balls in more holes. 
sounds a little dirty, but I think you get what I'm saying. <laughs> totally. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm finding this uh, answer that you've given so valuable. I, I do see you as an expert podcaster. Um, that's just <laughs> from, from my point of view. And, and I know that I speak on behalf of many. Oh, God. Uh, so, so that's, it, it's, <laughs> Debbie's squirming in her seat. Um, uh, and uh, I, I totally respect your, um, your proof in the pudding. Thank you. 300 plus episodes is remarkable. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Oh my gosh. Um, high-fiving her right now. Um, a few more questions for you, Debbie. Sure, of course. A question I ask all my guests. If you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Debbie Millman, perhaps Debbie finishing high school, what would you tell her? I would tell her... many things. Are you, do you edit all the silence out? <laughs> I'm kind of wanting to keep it in, <laughs> but we can. Well, there's so many things that, I mean, what would I say? I would say you might, this is what I would say. I know you're thinking that you're the only person in the world that this is happening to but you're not. So tell somebody and then it will stop. Beautiful. <sighs> Who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? Uh, I'm sure there are many, um, but is there a particular person or a couple people that come to mind who have inspired you to think bigger dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? Well, certainly Steve Heller, the design educator, historian, writer of 170 books. Uh, 170 he, books? Yeah, he's amazing. Wow. He um, first invited me to uh, create this program at the School of Visual Arts with him. He also referred me to my first book deal. Wow. of the book, uh, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. He wrote the foreword to that book. He is my fairy godfather. He has changed my life profoundly, wow. profoundly. I don't know that I could, would have this life if it weren't for Steve Heller, who has just gifted me so many amazing opportunities. Um, so he's, he's really the most influential person in, in my life. And then I'm inspired by so many people, so many designers and writers and painters and musicians and thinkers. I mean, the list is, is endless, yeah. endless, but he is the person who's had more impact on the course of my life than anyone. Amazing. So what's next for you, Debbie, and everything you're involved in, uh, for the rest of the year, it's about to end, uh, next year and beyond. I have a lot of things planned for 2017. I'm very, 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 very excited. <laughs> I am going to be uh, curating a show at wow. a design museum, which is the first time I've ever done that. So I'm very excited about in that. In NYC? In, not in NYC, but I can't say anything more than okay. that at the moment. But I certainly Intriguing. will next year. I am going to be working on a new book. I am going to be working on a movie about the book. Wow. And I am going to be 
starting my, I, I used to do a monthly visual essay for a print magazine online. I did that for three years and stopped and I'm about to start doing that again. Wow. So I'm very excited about that. Starting the eighth year of the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding program. Right. And, um, couple of really amazing trips planned for 2017. Sydney? Uh, I'd love to come Australia? back to Sydney. Oh, I'd love to come back to Sydney. I love Sydney. I've We'd been to Australia twice. I've been to New Zealand. I love that part of the world. I'd go back in an instant. So who knows? Who knows? That's, that's very cool. Uh, Debbie, how can listeners get in touch with you online? What's, what, what would you... Uh... Well, you can listen to my podcast, which is Design Matters on iTunes, SoundCloud, Design Observer. You can find me on Twitter at, at Debbie Millman. Same with Instagram, same with Facebook. Lots of ways. Yeah. Amazing. Easy to find. Debbie, thank you so much for your time. The opportunity to be one-on-one -on -one with you is something I don't take lightly. Uh, I know hundreds of people around the world who would kill to be in my shoes oh, at this man. very moment. Um, you are truly a pioneer and am honored that this interview will live on as an artifact to help many generations of designers to come. Thank and uh, you, you've just given me so thank many you. tingles in thank my body. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. And thank you for doing what you're doing. This is so wonderful and it's helping so many people and it's an honor to be here with you. That's a wrap, Giants. I hope you found that interview as enlightening and informative as I did. Feel free to share this episode with a friend or a loved one if you feel it'd benefit them. Giantthinkers.com slash Debbie will take them right to it. Now, a little teaser for the next episode. He has had a 45-year stint at Herman Miller and was in fact hired as their first ever graphic designer in 1970, working his way up to creative director and now still with them as an advisor. His work is part of the permanent collection at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and is also an AIJ medalist. I'm sure you can guess who it is, so stay tuned for that one. Before you race off, as mentioned at the beginning, I highly recommend you check out Mailer Light, especially if you're a freelancer or a small business owner. I believe it's the best solution for your email marketing needs. Apart from all the features you'll ever need, what I personally think sets Mailer Light ahead of the rest is their impeccable customer service. They are lightning fast and getting back to you with any questions you may have, and it feels like you have another team member on board. Head to MailerLite.com, that's MailerLite.com, to try out their service for free. I'll leave you now with a quote that I loved from Debbie, who said, real meaning and effort comes from a dogged persistence of what you dream of. 